0: Good morning. Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be handling from verse 21 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 35. We just worked through the um, most detailed church discipline passage in the entire Bible, Matthew 18:15 through 20. Hmm. As we've seen, church, de- church discipline dare not be neglected. It promotes both individual and corporate sanctification. It helps keep our dear brothers and sisters connected to the body and it creates culture in the world to bring about covenant blessings to the community around us. The goal at all times throughout the entire process is to win our brother. To pursue corporate holiness and to advance the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on the earth. But upon hearing these, teaching, these teachings, where does Peter's mind immediately go? And that's what we see today. So where's Peter's mind after hearing these promises and these commands? What's Peter thinking about? In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, we see him ask a dangerous question. Then Peter came and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him... 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay me back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have mercy with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then, summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay All that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you doesn't forgive his brother from your heart. Before we get into the sermon points this week, again notice the timing. Then or at that time, Peter came to him and said... At what time? Immediately after Jesus instructed them about corporate church discipline that whatever they corporately bound on earth would be what was bound in heaven. After Jesus assured them that the church would rule righteously and call the right parties to repentance and insist that the right people repent. What's part of of repentance? Restitution of what's old, right? But sometimes when the church rules on something, do you think all the people are going to be satisfied with it? Hmm. No. So, Peter wanted to know how many times he, individually, had to forgive. The, kind of in the background here is this insinuation that maybe the church won't get this right, and if I still feel wrong, how many times do I have to forgive? We're going to look at today, who is Peter concerned about forgiving? Secondly, how many times must he forgive? Three, why must he forgive? And lastly, who does the father forgive? We begin with, who is Peter concerned about forgiving? Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So Peter hears this somber yet encouraging teaching from our Lord and what does he ask? Does he ask how to go about pursuing the shunned man who's been put out of the church? How do I make sure I? How do I try my best to bring him back? Is that where Peter's heart is? No. Uh-uh. Does he ask any clarifying questions about how to be certain that they're rightly binding and loosing? Nope. No, nope, that's not on his radar. In light of Jesus' teaching about discipline, Peter's concerned about putting a cap on his mercy. That's what he wants. That's where his heart is. Peter's question is dripping with self-interest. How many times do I personally have to, this word means forgive, it's to let loose, to discharge, to cancel a debt. The church has accepted this erring brother, but Peter wants to make sure that he gets any and every good thing that he thinks he deserves. He doesn't want to risk having to discharge or cancel a debt he thinks is owed to him or to do without anything that he thinks is rightly his. And who is Peter concerned with forgiving? Well, it says right there in the text, doesn't it? It is his brother that he's concerned about having to forgive. Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Throughout chapter 18, Jesus speaks of believers, even the least of believers, in warm familial language. He calls them little ones and children and brothers throughout this chapter. And here Peter picks up on that warm familial language, my brother, my adelphos, that, the man with whom I am one womb. We have the same source. He's acknowledging that. This text isn't about a Christian's obligation to forgive someone outside the church. Nor is it about our behavior toward the unrepentant man who we've previously counted as a brother but who now is to be counted as a Gentile and tax collector. It's not about those people. There are biblical texts that shed light on those questions but that's not relevant to our text this morning. That's not what this is talking about. Peter is concerned about the man who has been approached about sin and responded in repentance, who has heeded the call of repentance according to what the church said was right. He's done what the church said and who is therefore still to be considered as a brother. That even includes the man who pushed the limits, thus requiring a follow-up visit with one or two more. But then he repented and he's still to be counted as a brother. Or even the man who had to be brought before the entire church before he heard and repented. But when he was brought before the church, what did he do? He heard and he repented, so he's to be counted as A brother. Or even the guy that was put out of the church but restored because after he was put out, the discipline worked and he's restored in repentance. And in that case, he's still to be called what? A brother. But how many times can that happen? Peter's concerned about the guy who just can't seem to get his act together. He sins. He's confronted. He admits he's wrong. He expresses his regret, his remorse, and he repents. Only to what? to sin again. Peter's question was, does forgiveness have a limit? Of course, if a person commits an offense and repents, he should be forgiven and restored a few times. But what if he continually falls into sin over and over again? How many times do I have to forgive such a brother? But there's even more of a personal aspect to Peter's question. Peter's concerned about his brother who sins against him. That's what he says, Right? How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? By the addition of the words against me, it's clear that Peter is speaking about the limits of personal mercy within the community of faith. Yes, the church will still include this man as a brother if he repents, but what if this brother keeps wronging me personally, me, individually? What if we keep having friction? How many times do I have to forgive him before I'm allowed to hold a grudge? To give in to some resentment? To hold that guy at arm's length? To demand personal restitution? How many times? Have you ever noticed that we tend to be far more concerned with sins or perceived sins against ourselves than we are with sin in general or sin against someone else? Aren't we? If someone... Uh, are, Are you more angry if someone insults a kid or if they insult your kid? Which one? Right. If they cut you off when you're driving or if they cut someone else off when you're driving and you see it, which one do you get mad about? Or if someone breaks something in a house and you hear about it, or if they break something in your house... Why are we more offended by sins or even perceived sins against ourselves than we are sins against others? It's the idolatry of the self. We're the center of our own universe. We love ourselves more than we love our neighbor, more than we love others. We matter to us more than other people. We're not concerned about the offense against God. And we're not concerned about the sin, the, 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 um, the results of the sin for our brother. We're concerned with how the sin affects us. Peter is immediately right back to this after talking about church discipline. Instead of being offended by sins against God, instead of being focused on loving his brother, he was more concerned with whether or not his brother was doing right by him and loving him like he should. We all can tend toward that, can't we? And it's a real problem. The closer we are to a situation, the more likely we are to be too emotionally invested and too biased to see the situation clearly. You get emotionally entangled. There's a reason why family members of a wronged person are not placed on a jury in a case involving another family member. You're like, oh, of course you can't put them on the jury. They're kin to the person. They can't be unbiased, right? Well, how much more should we be skeptical of ourselves when we are troubled by a personal slot? Of course we should. How? You can't get closer to a situation than yourself. That's like the guilty person being on his own jury. Not guilty, sir. <laughs> right? Peter wants to make sure that he gets to be the sole arbiter when it comes to sins against himself. He wants a greater degree of authority to adjudicate personal offenses. When the Bible says, and even common sense tells us, that we need less authority to judge personal offenses. You don't need more when it's against you. You need less. You need other people to help you think through it. More so when it's a personal offense, when my brother sins against me. In a parallel passage in Luke, we see Jesus prescribe a greater posture of forgiveness for personal offenses than for sins in general. The opposite of how we're naturally wired. Listen to Luke, Luke 17, 3-4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. But then he goes on. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times, saying, repent, forgive him, he ups the ante. He encourages once for any sin, go and rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. But then he turns it personal and says, and if it's against you, go over the top, even to the point of seven times in one day. Why? Because Jesus understood the dangers of self-idolatry. We're to have a heightened readiness for forgiveness in the case of personal offenses than we have for sins in general. So we see that Peter wants freedom to retain an offense against a brother. And specifically, he wants to know how many times he must forgive. Peter makes a suggestion concerning how many times that he should be required to forgive. And Jesus offers a correction to that suggestion. What Peter's suggestion is in verse 21. How many times? Up to seven times? Peter suggests a limit... Of seven times that 's not as striking to us as it would have been in first century Israel. The Jewish tradition had a bar for forgiveness, and it was much lower than seven times. They cited Amos one three you can read the old rabbis and they would cite Amos one three Amos one six Amos one nine Amos one eleven and Amos one thirteen they 'd cite it, and they would point to that. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment. They cited those verses. They, the rabbis actually made a universal rule limiting forgiveness. If God only forgives his enemies three times, they reasoned, then it was unnecessary, it was even presumptuous for men to forgive each other more than that. We shouldn't forgive more than three times because God said he didn't in Amos 1.3. In their circles, a man was looked down upon as weak, even pathetic, if he extended too much mercy. One rabbi said that he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must do so uh, no more than three times. After that, you're just going to look pathetic for continuing to ask. You don't mean it. You might as well not even ask anymore. Another said, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits a, a, an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. He could have said that more succinctly, but that's how he said it. Right. So Peter probably thought Jesus would be impressed with his seemingly generous suggestion of up to seven times. Compared to Jewish tradition, Peter was being generous, wasn't he? Peter had listened to Jesus' teaching and had a growing understanding of Jesus' personal example of compassion and mercy. So, so Peter doubled their narrow limit for forgiveness and then added one more to it for good measure, didn't he? He doubled it plus one. And it's not coincidental that it got all the way to seven times, which was the number of completeness or perfection. And he's saying, how you could anybody... Be more generous than that. Could anyone, could any? Could you ask any more of that from any man? And Jesus immediately answers that question. Listen to Jesus' correction. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times 7. Where Peter thought he was being gracious, where he thought he was being completely different than those calloused scribes and Pharisees, it turned out that his bar was still far closer to their bar than it was to God's bar. Peter's seven chances is much closer to the Pharisees' three than it is to God's 490 here, isn't it? Uh, But... For the, the, the comparison gets worse when we realize that Jesus wasn't just extending the rabbinical tradition's limit of forgiveness from 3 all the way to 490. And that'd be a pretty drastic increase, wouldn't it? You have to forgive 487 more times than the Pharisees and then you're off the hook, if that's what he was saying. They said 3. It's 3 plus 487. Then you're, then you're done. But no, that's not what's going on here. We're not looking at... 70 times 7 as a math equation to get us to the magical number where we can stop forgiving. Even those who are bad at math can obey the spirit of this command. Jesus picked up. Peter's number—it's all, all he's doing—and multiplying it by itself and then by ten, indicating a number that, for all practical purposes, was beyond counting. You're not going to—who's going to take a list, make a list that long? Nobody's going to do that. You're, who, can you think of anybody? You're like, hey, this guy—he's—he's he's already wronged me 247 times. I mean, he's well on his way to that 490. Nobody's making a list that long, are they? And that's Jesus' point—that no record keeping. Is allowed. Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians thirteen five, talking about love. That love does not make a list of wrongs suffered. You don't get to do that. that. That's the limitless nature of our forgiveness toward our brothers and sisters. A Christian with a forgiving heart is wronged, seeks reconciliation and repentance from the person, and once the situation is behind them, he thinks nothing more about it. He forgives the hundredth offense and even the thousandth offense as readily and graciously as he does the first offense. Why? Because that's the way that he's been forgiven by God. That's why. Peter was thinking in the measurable and limited terms of the letter of the law, not in the immeasurable and unlimited terms of the spirit of grace that was purchased, that was going to be purchased by Jesus' perfect obedience to that law. Of course Peter was going to get this wrong. Remember in Matthew sixteen twenty-one, right after the first time that Jesus introduces the idea of the ministry of the keys and church discipline and he tells them right after that that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And what did Peter do? <laughs> Peter said, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter couldn't understand the magnitude of what was going to take place on the cross. The way God forgave his enemies in Amos 1.3 has no bearing on how that he forgives his beloved children, those for whom Christ will die. It's not the same thing. We look at Amos 1.3. He forgives his enemies three times. Guys, we're not his enemies. That's the thing. We're not his enemies. If Jesus has paid it all, then there's no reason to keep count anymore. Because there's infinite grace doled out for the Father's little ones. You are forgiven of all the offenses by your heavenly Father. So I don't keep score anymore. The score's gone. Isn't that what it says in Romans 5, 8-11? God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus, through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Guys, we're saved by the life of Christ. We're not enemies anymore. We're sons. Sons of the kingdom. How God forgives his children is with an infinite forgiveness. And we must forgive God's children, our brothers, in that same infinite way. Paul tells us that in Ephesians four thirty-two: Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ also forgave you. And that's where Jesus goes in his explanation of why we must forgive. Starting at verse 23, Jesus then explains. He says, for this reason... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. These words introduce a perspective-changing parable. This for this reason, he tells the parable for this reason. That is, as a direct response to Peter's question about forgiving a brother. He's applying it directly to that question. The parable transitions from a father of little ones to a king and his slaves. So there's a, there's a transition. It's, it's comparable. It's not exactly the same thing, but there's a comparison being made from greater relationship to lesser relationship here of a king to his slaves. For this reason, the kingdom of... Heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Throughout this chapter, Jesus has referenced believers as God's precious children and with the endearing phrase of little ones. But now we get this new imagery. Like all of Jesus' parables, this story would have been very relatable to the disciples because it was familiar. All citizens of ancient kingdoms were seen as slaves. How many citizens? All. In, in, in the sense that they owed total allegiance to the king, who typically had life and death power over them. In that sense, noblemen were as much the king's slaves as the most menial servants were. Everybody was a slave. We, when we're thinking of slave here, we, we might think of somebody... Uh, no, we're, this is a rich slave who is a nobleman. A king usually appointed governors over various provinces of his kingdom. And the nobleman's primary responsibility was to collect taxes on the king's behalf. It was probably in regard to such taxes that the king in this parable wished to settle accounts with the slaves who were over large provinces. Those who might consider themselves greatest in the kingdom or something. They're all slaves, but I'm the greatest slave and I'm responsible for those under me to collect taxes from them. It is those types of people who might forget that they too are of the lowest ranks, isn't it? They too are slaves. The man who owed the king 10,000 talents should probably be understood as such a tax-collecting official. Now Jesus introduces a slave with an unpayable debt to the king. Verse 24b... When he had thus began to settle these accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents were brought to him." When we hear 10,000 talents it doesn't hit us like it should because when we think of a talent we think of whistling or juggling or playing the guitar. <laughs> and, and that's not what a talent is. Uh, a talent is a measurement of weight. 10,000 talents, a talent is 75 pounds. Well, 75 pounds of what? What's the size of this debt? Usually when the Bible mentions talents, it's referring to precious metals like gold or silver. So 10,000 talents would be... Get this. 750,000 pounds of gold. Let that knock you down. He owed 750,000 pounds of gold or silver. Let that sink in. The total annual revenue collected by the Roman government from Edomia, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee combined at that time to about 900 talents per year. All the taxes owed by all four of those provinces combined, 900 talents. Based on those figures, 10,000 talents amounted to more than 11 years of taxes from those four provinces combined. Golly! For more perspective, consider the total amount of gold given for the use of Solomon's temple in the Old Testament was 8,000 talents of gold in 1 Chronicles 29. At its peak, Israel's entire kingdom only collected 666 talents of gold for the whole year, First 1 Kings 10.14. This is no small sum. This is astronomical. It's an impossibly large amount of money, and that's the point. This word, myriai, literally means 10,000, but because it was the largest numerical term in the Greek language, it was often used to represent a vast, uncountable number. We get the English word myriad from this word. Myrius is therefore sometimes translated countless. It is in 1 Corinthians 4.15 or as myriads in Revelation 5.11. Jesus' point in this parable is obvious. The man who owed the king 10,000 talents owed a debt that he could never repay. In the same way that 70 times 7 was meant to be without end, this debt is endless and incalculable as well. This person, uh, this uh, uh, incalculable, unpayable debt obviously represents the sin debt that every man owes to God, doesn't it? When the Holy Spirit convicts a person of his sin, that person is faced with the fact that the extent of his sin is beyond comprehension and humanly unpayable. If you don't understand that, if you don't feel the gravity of that, you're not yet converted. You must see yourself as, what I owe God? It is unpayable. There's no way I could ever make it right. I'm damned and doomed before him if somebody with the means to pay doesn't step in on my behalf. You've got to feel that. We know we can never make it back right. And we turn now to the initial response of the king in verse 25. But since this slave didn't have the means to repay 750,000 pounds of gold... His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. When you read this parable and don't understand what a talent is, the response seems cruel and unwarranted. But now we see just how incompetent, how wasteful, and how crooked this slave had been. He's been collecting the taxes for all this time and living recklessly, blowing it off, just gone... He squandered an incalculable fortune, wasting years and years worth of tax revenues that rightfully belonged to the king. It was tantamount to treason. Death would have been a reasonable punishment, but the king justly decrees that he, his wife, and his children be sold. Obviously, the money raised from the punishment wouldn't restore a meaningful fraction of that debt, but it was the punishment decreed by the king so he could at least get a small portion of what was owed to him. Isn't that our story? We've wasted and squandered so many of God's good gifts to us, haven't we? We owed Him our time, our devotion, our talents, our gratitude, and our allegiance. And prior to our conversion, we paid God no mind. And let's be honest. After our conversion, we paid Him not nearly enough. Today or yesterday... To be honest here, right? We lived enjoying every gift God graciously stewarded to us without a thought of the day of reckoning that was coming. And in our guilt, we realize that we like every child of Adam are completely and utterly spiritually bankrupt. MacArthur says this, by the standards of that day, the king in this parable had been gracious, uh, graciously just by his not demanding an accounting earlier. In a in infinitely greater way, God is gracious to the most hardened sinner just by allowing him to go on living. Isn't that right? Life itself is a great gift of divine mercy. But the slave doesn't just accept this punishment that's coming. He doesn't just oh well, it's my lot. No, he cries out for mercy. Can you imagine the helpless, hopeless regret that this slave felt? He knew that he was wrong. He should have absolutely known that there was nothing he could do to fix it. And the punishment had been decreed. But he cries out anyway. Let's consider two things about his cry. First, it was humble and urgent. Verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. His falling down and prostrating himself was an act of total submission. Throwing himself completely at the mercy of the king. Because what else could he do? He was obviously guilty, condemned, and devastated. And the realization of his hopelessness led to a genuine brokenness and contrition. I imagine him on his face, weeping, snot coming out of his nose, just, no, in pain. He's about to be separated from his family because of something he knows he's guilty of. Something he caused. And his whole family is going to suffer for it. And he's going to lose everything he's ever had. He had no defense and he offered no defense. He's not crying for anything but mercy right now, right? In the same way, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us because of the mountainous weight of our sin, the only reasonable response is to acknowledge that we stand guilty and condemned before God. Our only hope is to humble ourselves, confess our sins, and cast ourselves on God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Every sinner should be as overwhelmed by his sin as this man is overwhelmed by his debt But then he makes an offer of repayment in verse 26, second part of the verse. He fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. Well, this part's a little bit silly, isn't it? It's probably the root of why things play out so poorly as they do later on. He still thinks he can repay something. He still thinks, I can pay this. This man actually thought he could repay this debt. 750,000 pounds of gold and he thinks he can repay it. It's impossible. No matter how long or how hard he worked, there's no way he could ever make it right. In desperation though, he begs the king, have patience with me. And then he makes this unrealistic promise, I'll repay you everything. And what do we see next? the compassionate forgiveness of this king in the parable. Verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Well, that's beautiful words, isn't it? The, the Lord of that slave felt compassion. What a king! Th- this slave who's so far beneath him, he has many just like him, and this slave has done him so wrong. How many kings would just off with their heads... But no, he felt compassion. What a king. No punishment would have been too great for this wicked slave. But he humbly and urgently fell at the feet of the king and offered to pay back all he owed. And the king did better than that still. He forgave the debt completely. 750,000 pounds of gold debt. Whew. Gone. Forgiven. You, no, you don't have to pay me back. It's like it never happened. Gone. Ketelsai. Paid in full. The king knew full well that this servant could never pay back the enormous debt, but he had compassion. And he didn't chide the man for his foolish and worthless offer. No, in his compassion, he simply released him and forgave the debt. But now the story takes an ugly turn with the introduction of the debt of a fellow slave to the forgiven slave, in verse twenty-eight, but the slave went out. But the slave went. Out. So this happens, and immediately the, there's a but. The slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, "Pay back what you owe." The contrasts here absolutely slap the reader in the face. First, let's contrast the size of the dead old to the size forgiven. 100 denarii, you want to know how much it is? It's roughly a hundred days wages for a common laborer. That's all. Now it's not by no means a small amount of money. I mean, what you earn in about a third of a year but compared to 10,000 talents, 11 years of Roman taxes from the provinces of Edomia, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee combined, 2,000 talents more than it took to build the temple, but that's inconsequential, right? Now we turn to the contrast, contrasting the initial response of, forgiven, of the forgiven slave to that of the king. What did, what did he do? Well, he's more harsh from the very beginning he seized him and began to choke him and said, pay me back what you owe. Why is this slave doing this? Look at the stark contrast with verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now the slave is seizing instead of releasing. See the direct opposites? Seizing instead of releasing. Choking instead of having compassion. Demanding repayment instead of forgiving. Direct opposite. Perhaps this forgiven slave is going out to collect all the debts that are owed to him so he can try to pay back what's owed to the king. That's what it seems like is going on here. Instead of resting in the forgiveness he's received and celebrating the gracious reign of this merciful king, this slave is going to go make sure everyone else in the kingdom pays everything they owe so he can pay the king back. But in so doing, he's totally out of line with the heart of the king, isn't he? That's not the king. He's serving. God forbid we become so exacting in our binding and loosing in the church that we become like this unmerciful slave. God's forgiven me, so I'm going to make sure you live right. I'm going to police everything you do, and I'm going to demand you do what I think you should do. Oh, I've seen Christians try to go down that road. You're a million miles away from the heart of the king when that becomes who you are. That's not to say that righteousness doesn't matter. It is to say that we slowly instruct people and we deal with them in their weaknesses and their blind spots, encouraging repentance, making sure that we're only dealing with rebellion when we're trying to call people's hearts and helping them see and usher them along, knowing that we've been forgiven That God's merciful, that He endures with them patiently and lets them grow slowly, not demanding and not exactingly. Now we turn to an aspect where no contrast can be found. This slave doesn't just roll over either. He also begs for mercy. A few verses ago, this slave, the forgiven slave, was the debtor. Now he's the one that's owed the money. And the one who owes him appeals in exactly the same posture as he has appealed to the king. Notice, humble and urgent. Verse 29, So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him. Remember verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. It's exactly the same picture, isn't it? You'd think that would have been so familiar. It, I mean, it just happened. And immediately he goes out. This situation would have been so familiar that it would have shaken him to his senses. Not only did they both fall to the ground, though, notice again an offer of repayment is made. Verse 29. Have patience with me and I'll repay you. Remember his words in verse 26, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. It's like deja vu all over again, isn't it? That should have shocked the forgiven slave's memory. Back to a response of compassion. He wouldn't have even been like his gracious king if he would have said, all right, I'm going to give you a little while. That wouldn't have been as gracious as his king had been to him, would it? But what does he do? He... The compassionless exacting from the previously forgiven slave in verse 30. But he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was old. It's unbelievable, isn't it? How calloused. How cruel. How inconsistent! How could someone rejoice and revel in the unfathomable forgiveness that had been so graciously extended to him, yet refused to extend a far lesser degree of grace and mercy to another person? How? This previously forgiven slave threw his subordinate in prison until he paid back everything that was owed. To mercilessly, to mercilessly demand repayment after he himself had been forgiven so much was grossly and embarrassingly hypocritical. But to abuse and imprison his debtor for failure to pay such a comparably small debt is morally inconceivable. How, what? How can you be that wicked? Some suggest that it was foolish to throw him in prison because in prison the man couldn't earn money to pay his debt. But as any good leg-breaking loan shark knows, when you deal harshly with those who don't pay, others are afraid to not pay lest they suffer the same fate. This slave is probably dealing harshly trying to create a kind of culture in his province where he can actually make a run at repaying the debt that was forgiven by the king. He's thinking, okay, I'm going to make an example out of you and everybody else will pay me. I've got to pay this debt back. guy. Slave, your, your debt's forgiven. Stop it. That's not the heart of your king. We don't try to go and make everybody do what we think is right. So the king will be pleased. It's not what we're doing here. A debt that has, according to the king, been forgiven, we take him and his word and we extend that forgiveness as well. We're his slaves, right? The strategy doesn't end well for the forgiven slave. We see that the pronounced forgiveness is withdrawn. What led to this renouncement of the previously pronounced forgiveness? Well, notice this. It's the corporate action of the fellow slaves. Read verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And we're right back in the arena of church discipline here. Who carries their concern back to the king? The fellow slaves. The fellow slaves of this unforgiving, forgiven slave. When we as church members see a member refusing to forgive a brother, we too should be deeply grieved. That sin is just as grotesque as any other sin that we, might be, that we might want to put somebody out of the church for for being a reproach in the name of Christ. It's just as grievous. Peter wanted to know when it was okay for him to harbor a personal offense against his brother. And the answer? Never. We must forgive 70 times 7. There's no end to our compassion and mercy toward the repentant sinner. And if one brother refuses to forgive another, we should be deeply grieved and should stand against the unforgiving, allegedly forgiven so-called brother calling him to repent of his hypocrisy. We know the heart of the king. We understand that this unforgiving slave is obligated to forgive. And we bind in the kingdom that which is in keeping with the heart of the king. When we judge the unforgiving slave, the king agrees with our verdict. Because it's his heart already. Now look at the verses 32 through 34 where we see that the Lord judges the unforgiving slave. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. This is a parable, so we must avoid pressing the aspects of the parable too hard. Developing one's theology or soteriology from parables has led many men into heresy, hasn't it? This parable is not teaching that God forgives but then withdraws His forgiveness. That you can be saved and then lost. It's not teaching that anymore. than it's teaching that over time you can suffer enough in hell or purgatory to atone for your own sins. It's been used to prove that too and it doesn't either. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king settling his debts with a slave. The kingdom of heaven is not identical to this story of the king settling his debts with his slaves. It can be compared to. But rest assured that just like a normal, rational human king wouldn't have mercy on a merciless slave, God won't have mercy on those who are not merciful. Why? Why? Because those who are not merciful have obviously not yet understood their own need of mercy. You're not a kingdom citizen. You're not poor of spirit. You've not recognized your own guilt. You're not really thinking all I have is Christ. You're still thinking you're a little better than your other brothers. You're, you're not converted. You're in the assembly of the people that are converted, but you're a so-called brother masquerading. Even if you really think you're saved, if you can harbor bitterness and hatred, you don't get the gospel. And we call you to repent of that. And if you will, you're restored and you're a brother. But if you won't repent of that, it's like any other sin. You're out. You're not one of us. The forgiveness we had said you were part of by extending the table before, we now withdraw the table because that ain't you. You're not one of us. If you won't forgive your brother and do it from your heart. In verses 26 through 27, when the king saw the humility and urgency of the slave, he was moved with compassion. But in verse 34, after the king heard of the compassionless actions of the slave whom he had forgiven, he was again moved... But this time he was moved with anger. He was moved with compassion and now he's moved with anger. God doesn't hear things. He doesn't gain new information. He knows the hearts of men perfectly at all times. But when we as Christians see an unforgiving, unmerciful spirit in a professing believer, we must be grieved and call him to repentance. If he will not repent, his refusal to forgive is to be treated like any other sin. And we enact Matthew 18. Peter's thinking, how can I hold a personal offense? Jesus saying, if you do, you need to be brought through the steps of church discipline. That's the message of this text. And who does the Father give? Who does the Father forgive? Our last point. My Heavenly Father. This is very pointed, direct, unavoidable. I'm not interpreting it, I'm reading it. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you doesn't forgive his brother from his heart. Notice, Jesus turns again from the master of slaves back to the father of little ones. He did the analogy with master and slaves. Now he's back to father and little ones and brothers again. The point's obvious. If a human king would be infuriated if a slave that he had forgiven was unmerciful to another mere slave... Would the father, would a father not be even more angry if you refused to have mercy on one of your brothers, another of his children, whom he has forgiven, and now you won't forgive him like he's forgiven him, and you're going to lord offenses over him when the father's forgiven him completely? He's saying this is even worse. Just like if you wouldn't pursue the asset, the sheep that went astray. I mean that you would pursue the asset, the sheep that went astray, but you wouldn't pursue one of the little ones. You despised them and thought little of them. It's the same kind of contrast here. From greater to lesser offense or lesser to greater offense. As bad as it was that this slave wouldn't forgive another slave, it's even worse when a child of God won't forgive another child of God. The father's more angry than the slave would be. This uh, theme has shown up consistently in Matthew. In Matthew 5, 3-7, through 7, we hear in the very beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount where it's the uh, announcement of Jesus' Messiahship and the kingdom of heaven arriving on earth. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are the merciful... They're the ones that will obtain mercy. He's always said, if you're not merciful, you won't obtain mercy. Why? Because you're not poor spirit. You're not a kingdom citizen. You're showing you've not been born again. That's the point. Matthew 6, uh, 12 through 15, in the kingdom prayer, where he says, forgive us our trespasses. How? As we also forgive those who trespass against us. Actually, it says forgive us our debts. Same word that's used here. As we also forgive our debtors. For I... And then in verse 14, it says, 6-14, If you forgive others for their trespasses, transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Are you sitting there in the pew today saying, Oh, how I love Jesus and oh, I'm saved and I'm glad I'm on the glory land way. But in your heart you have so much hatred toward other people. Put that away. Put that away. It'll drag your soul to hell. Notice also that this forgiveness must be from your heart. It's not obligatory forgiveness. I guess if I have to. It's overflowing forgiveness from the heart of the man who himself is forgiven. He recognizes I'm forgiven, so therefore he's just a forgiving person because he knows I've been forgiven so much. How can I not be? That's why... One of the tenets of our church covenant is as follows. When you join Manual Fellowship, you're agreeing to this. We will joyfully forgive and extend mercy. Why do we write that in there? Uh, we believe the Bible. That's the answer. We will joyfully, from the heart, extend forgiveness and mercy. Refusing to retaliate for wrong suffered, but instead doing good to those who sin against us. He who demands mercy. This is uh, Thomas Adams. Uh, Pastor David posted this a few days ago, shared it with us. But He who demands mercy and shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself is to pass. You want mercy and you refuse? That's the bridge you're wanting to cross on. You're burning that bridge down. You'll have no mercy if you burn that bridge. It's the only hope you've got. It's also interesting to me. Who's the one... Asking this question? Peter. Peter asks, How many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? Let's go through the book of Matthew. Peter said, Lord, bid me to come to you walking on the water. And he walks out there and then he sees the waves and he begins to sink. And Jesus says to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Sin one. Matthew 16, Peter rebuked Jesus for predicting the cross. saying, get, And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Sin number two. Peter suggests building three tabernacles. One for Christ, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And God just thunders at him while he was still speaking. A bright cloud overshadowed them, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Sin three. Matthew 17, Jesus, Peter answers for Jesus, saying that he, that Jesus would pay the temple tax. And Jesus actually informed him that actually we don't owe it. The sons are. Exiled. Sin four. Matthew 18, he was part of the argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, if that's your argument, and you've not become like a little child, you won't even get to the kingdom of heaven. Sin five. Then in chapter 26, 34 through 30, I mean 37 through 40, Jesus asked him to pray with him for just one hour, Watch watching pray, and he falls asleep three times. Sin six, sin seven, sin eight. Uh oh. Peter, you're in trouble. Verse chapter 26, they ask, do you know this man? Oh, nope, don't even know him. Sin 9? Uh, sin nope, denied him again. Sin 10? Then denies him and blasphemes. Sin 11? Peter, you're in big trouble by your own standard. One might even include this question. How many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times. Jesus says, no, that's not in the heart of the Father. Seven times 70. There's sin 12. And then later, even after the resurrection in the early church, he shows his hypocrisy by not wanting to eat with the Gentiles when the Jewish Christians are around showing favoritism. And Paul had to rebuke him. Sin 13. How how many times, Peter, do you want to be forgiven? The disciples asked another dangerous question at the beginning of chapter 18. We've already mentioned once, didn't they? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus warned, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now Peter asks, How often do I have to forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And in the end, Jesus says that if you ever refuse to forgive your brother, you will not be forgiven and enter the kingdom at all. To not forgive, you have to not see yourself as the lowest of rank. These are related sins. Why aren't you forgiven? Because you think you're better than other people. That's why. You don't realize how sinful you are and how much mercy you need. That's why. You don't get it. If you thought, if you truly saw yourself as the lowest of rank, became like one of these little children and were converted, you would see yourself rightly. Therefore, you would extend infinite mercy to your brothers and sisters who also are cleaving to the grace of God. Peter, Peter obviously still didn't see himself on equal ground with the lowest. He saw himself as the noble slave over the other slaves, forgetting that they're all just slaves still. Even days before the crucifixion, this attitude still plagued Peter. There arose a dispute, Luke twenty-two twenty-four, 24, over to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest again. On the same day, Peter told Jesus, Even though all may fall away from you, I will not fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. Luke 22, 31-34, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have been converted or turned again, strengthen your brothers. He would be ready to strengthen his brothers once he had been converted, once he would turned again. But Peter still didn't get it and said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. But it wasn't long until he denied him three times, just like the Lord said that he would. He was like the slave who was over the whole taxable province. Undoubtedly, the slave over the province saw himself as above the other slaves who owed the taxes in his province. But to the king, they were all on equal ground as slaves. But our ground is better than this. Sure, we're all slaves in some sense. But we're on equal ground in another, a more glorious way. We're all on equal ground as the father's little ones. Yet, we're all sinners, but guys, when when your kids sin, do you just want to throw... Are you saying, how many times shall my child sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And if he does, he's on his own. None of you parent that way, do you? It's not who our God is. It's not who our Father is. It's not who he commands us to be. We're of that low rank, forgiving our siblings just as our parents forgive us. Be that kind of citizen. Be that kind of citizen. Because if you aren't that kind of citizen, you're not truly a citizen of the kingdom at all. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word of instruction. Lord, it's penetrating, it's convicting. Lord, we've all dealt with this, uh, the sense, sense of superiority at times, Lord, that we don't see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt that we become haughty, that we look down our noses. And Lord, that that can lead to an unforgiving and exacting spirit. Lord, far be it from us. Lord, let us be a gracious people and a loving people. Lord, help us to be conduits of grace and mercy. You've shown so much to us. Lord, help us to show it to others. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.